Holy Spirit, we ask that you would apply the word to our hearts and open our eyes to the truth of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and the great sacrifice he made while we were yet sinners. In his name we pray, amen. A reading from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, beginning with verse 22, the word of the Lord. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in the true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Stephanie. In her book, Unbroken, Laura Hillenbrand recounts an amazing true story of World War II veteran and prisoner of war survivor Louis Zamperini. It was on May 27, 1943, when his bomber left Oahu in search of survivors from a downed plane. About 800 miles from their base, one of the engines cut out and the bomber plunged into the ocean. Louis and another survivor uh, would stay afloat in a tiny life raft for 47 days, a world record for survival at sea. After confronting star sharks and starvation and dementia, their real battle would begin. Louis would spend the next two years in a Japanese prisoner of war camp, the notorious Sugamo prison. One scarred in particular who they nicknamed the bird in ensured that Louis endured constant physical torture and verbal humiliation, all in an attempt to shatter his spirit. If you've seen the movie, you might remember a scene where Louis is ordered by the bird to pick up a very large steel beam. He, he struggles, but eventually he's able to lift it even over his head at one point, and yet Bird tells the guard surrounding him to shoot him if it should drop. Fearing for his life, he endures the pain throbbing through his arms and his shoulders as he holds the beam over his head for hour upon hour upon hour, mixing physical pain with mental anguish and fear. Just one of many ways that the bird went out of his way to utterly break him. Finally, in 1945, after he'd already been declared dead, after two years of captivity and torture and grief, he returned to America to a rush of publicity. And while the movie ends there with his return from Sugamo prison, the book it's based on reveals that at that point his liberation was only external. As the story goes on, we see that Louis is consumed with rage and he's prone to angry outbursts. He is angry at religion and forbids, forbids Cynthia, his wife, from even going to church. Louis now endured constant nightmares about his past with an obsessive drive to murder the bird. 
One night, he was having a dream in which he was strangling the bird, only to wake up to find that he had been choking his pregnant wife. Following many other angry outbursts, Cynthia decided it was time for a divorce. As Hillenbrand writes, his life back in the U.S. quickly descended into a new self-made prison of alcoholism and bitterness. Despite a distance of thousands of miles, despite a space of years and years between them, Louis Zamperini was anything but free from the bird. How do you forgive those who have wronged you, who have hurt you, who have sinned against you so that you too don't wind up in a prison of your own making? Well, Jesus has a lot to say about forgiving. And his most famous words, perhaps, are what we find in Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 21. In your pew Bible, it starts on page 1527, or you can follow along on the screen or your memorial app. This is the word of the Lord. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times. Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. When the master, then the master called in the servant, you wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you, unless you forgive your brother from your heart. So what does Jesus show us here? Well, first he shows us the context of forgiveness. And that context is important because, frankly, there's a lot of things that people can do that we can struggle with. A person may do something that unknowingly just annoys you to no end, or they may decline your amazing offer of a date. How could they do such a thing? They may have poor fashion sense, and you're just an, you may just, they're just an eyesore for you. They might have different political views or cultural values that drive you nuts. And while all of those things may bother us, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. So what, he's, what Jesus, you see, Peter isn't asking about what do you do when people are different than you or have personality traits that annoy you or that operate with a different set of assumptions than you do. What he's asking in verse 21 is how do you respond when someone sins against you and not everything about another that's different than us? or that bothers us, is necessarily a sin on their part. Though judging them for those differences, or assuming and assigning ill motives, sometimes can be a sin on our part, a reason they might need to forgive us. Something I saw in my own life just this past week, I met up with someone I hadn't seen for a year or two, and 
something that they said really bothered me. In fact, like I was squirming in my chair, like parts of my body were moving. It was so disturbing. And so I came up to them to confront them on how they had been unfairly judging the heart, attitudes, and motives of people they don't even know. And as I began to ask him questions, just to clarify, I found out he wasn't saying what I thought he was saying. In fact, he wasn't assuming the motives or judging the hearts of others at all. I was of him. It wasn't he that was in danger of that sin, it was me. And it reminded me that feeling that someone has done wrong by itself doesn't necessarily mean that they've sinned or sinned against you. And yet what Peter is talking about specifically is what do you do when someone actually has sinned? That's the context. That's what when God's law has been broken and you're on the business end of it. Peter gets no arguments from Jesus when he asks, not hypothetically if, but certainly, what do you do when they sin against you? When a confidence is betrayed or when a covenant is broken? When you become the bully's next target? When someone uses their power or their influence to marginalize you? When someone takes advantage of you or abandons you? When someone throws you under the bus or takes credit for your achievement? When harsh words or slander cut deeper than any knife can? As I mentioned those things, maybe someone came to your mind. Maybe you even picture their face right now. Maybe someone from work. Maybe an ex. Maybe a family member. Maybe someone in this room. Usually the closer that relationship, the deeper the hurt is. Whoever they might be, whatever that sin might look like, sin hurts. And it doesn't hurt less when it happens again. Notice Peter's question in verse 21. How many times? It's like, Jesus, they did it again! And they keep on doing it. Sin keeps coming, and we keep on getting wounded by it. The rabbinical answer to the question, how many times you're supposed to forgive, was three. Three strikes, then you're out. Which means they already did it again and again. I mention that because often we just jump straight to Jesus' answer and we miss that the question assumes that we don't just hurt each other once. And whatever Jesus wants us to do in response, we too want to know that there's a point that we can stop doing it. Because sin hurts. That's the context that Jesus is speaking into. The context Louis Zamperini knew far too well. And that's what we see in the parable that Jesus follows with. Beginning in verse 23, he tells the parable in which two men, two servants, are each in debt to another person. Because of their actions, they each owe something. And it's a fitting parable because sin, by its very nature, takes from another and leaves the sinner indebted to the other, owing the other. A person's sin can, against us can take away comfort or peace or honor or a good reputation. It can take away our physical well-being, safety, security, or freedom. It can take away our livelihood, take away the lives of those that we love, take away life as we know it. To be sinned against means that somebody owes you, that they're in your debt. There's an outstanding debt and there's a longing to see it paid. And so Jesus uses this metaphor of debt to help us better understand what he's talking about and how that affects us. You see, in the parable, Jesus shows us what being sinned against does to us on the inside by showing us how it can manifest itself on the outside. Verse 28, Jesus describes it as like a man who, when seeing the one who owed him, was so filled with rage and bitterness that he didn't simply ask him to pay up, he grabbed him and began to choke him. 
verse 30, despite the man's willingness to set matters right, the one that he owed set out to have him punished, locked up until he could pay. I mean, how hurt do you have to be to end up choking somebody out just on sight? How much hurt, how much has that wound, big or small, have to fester to get to that point? What kind of debt could lead to that response? In verse 28, Jesus says the debt was a hundred denarii. And here's how that actually helps us. Many of you maybe know this particular feeling. You've been sitting at a computer, you've been working on it for hours, maybe for class, maybe for school, and your eyes are starting to get bloodshot. You're getting bleary. Your shoulders are starting to tense, and your body is telling you just how long you've been at this. Maybe the computer is starting to run a little bit slow. Maybe it's starting to act up, and so you, you push some keys, and instead of what you expect to see in response, you see this picture that we've got for you on your screen instead. The dreaded blue screen of death. The fonts have changed, but the emotional impact stays the same. And as you suddenly catch your breath, asking yourself, when did I last save? Does this thing even work anymore? Why don't even the buttons work? Like, is everything lost? And maybe you know that sinking feeling when you realize what you've been investing hours in is gone. The empty feeling when you realize it was all for nothing. You'll have to do it again. We know what our time is worth. And the thought of having to make it up just, just kills us. We might be saying to ourselves, that blasted computer owes me eight, ten, twelve hours of my life back. And if you thought that punching it would somehow solve things, you'd have one very damaged computer in front of you. And some of you know that feeling. I've seen your Facebook posts about it. And yet here's the thing with all that rage that you have inside of you. A computer is not human. It holds no malice. There is no premeditation. It wasn't trying to harm you. It didn't sin against you. No relationship has been damaged by it because it's a machine. And yet imagine what if that, the cause of that was human, was intentional, actually was a sin against you. Someone you're in relationship with caused it. I ask that because in Jesus' parable, he likens the effect of a person's sin on us to being owed a hundred times that debt. Jesus compares the debt to be paid to be forgiven to a hundred denarii. And in a time when people would work from sunup until sundown, a denarius, or one denarii, uh, was 12 hours of work. It was a day's pay. Jesus compares the debt owed to a hundred of those being owed 1,200 hours of work, four months of work by their standards, more than six months of work by our work week standards, because we don't work 12-hour days that often, half a year's pay. Some of you are calculating that in your mind. That is no small debt to be repaid, no small loss to incur, and the person in this parable is feeling it, just like we would. You see, Jesus doesn't minimize what it means to be sinned against or the cost that comes with it. He validates the hurt and the loss that we feel. And when it happens to us, something in us often doesn't just want to see things made square. We want them to hurt too. That's the context of forgiveness. And yet Jesus' instructions to us when anyone sins against us is to forgive them. That's the challenge that he sets before us, the challenge of forgiveness. Beginning in verse 33, Jesus tells us in this parable that the forgiveness of the king shows us how we're supposed to forgive. Forgiveness that's spelled out in verse 27, where the king took pity on him, 
canceled the debt and let him go. It's a package deal, but it actually helps if we just look at it one piece at a time. Jesus describes forgiveness as including canceling a debt. That means they no longer owe you. Whatever you felt that they may have owed you because of what they've done, you're no longer choosing to demand that from them anymore. Whatever they've done, it's not something you're hanging over their head anymore. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, love keeps no record of wrongs. The debt is canceled. It's forgiven. But that means something else is true as well. A few months ago, I got a picture from a good friend of her newly damaged car, Someone had been driving, the ice uh, was slicker than they thought, and they slid right into the side of her vehicle. $2,000 worth of damage is what the the body shop said. But now imagine there's no insurance to help. Somebody was going to have to pay for that. And if she was going to forgive the driver, that would mean that she'd have to pay that $2,000 herself. You see, to forgive means that whatever debt is owed, You're choosing to treat it as if it was your own debt and pay that down yourself. You see, while vengeance famously says, you'll pay for this, forgiveness says, I'll pay for this. That's what forgiveness is, to cancel a debt that they owe you by paying the cost yourself. And no amount of forgiveness comes without a cost. That's what the king is doing when he forgives his servant. As Miroslav Volf put it, The heart of forgiveness is the generous release of a genuine debt. And yet with that in mind, Jesus also tells us that the king let him go. Because to forgive someone is not just to release the debt, but to release them, to let them go. That's because there's more than one way that we can try to make someone pay down their debt to us. If you look back at the first servant who was not able to pay the debt that he owed, he was facing another possibility not just his possessions being sold, but he and his family, a life of slavery before them. But instead, the king let the servant go. See, to let someone go is not only to cancel the debt that they owe, but to refuse to exact payment from them in other ways. And we know so many ways of making people pay. We gossip about them. We insult them. We are cold to them. We withdraw from them, give them the silent treatment. We try to hurt them professionally, relationally, emotionally. We slander them, try to ruin their reputation, embellish the truth to make them look worse, or just despise them in our own hearts. And Jesus is telling us that all of these things are off the table when you forgive someone from your heart. Because all of them are ways that we still try to hold on to the bitterness that we have against them, signs that we haven't really let them go, signs that a bitter root is actually growing in our own hearts. But the reality is, the reason why we often nurse that bitter root is because we like to. It was Friedrich Buchner who once wrote, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel, both the pain that you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is actually you. Letting the offender go and releasing them from your debt isn't just for their benefit, it's for your benefit as well. 
And every time that we choose not to take the path of bitterness, not to make them pay in our own little ways, we're actually paying down that debt ourselves. And that can hurt. But as we do it, that debt gets smaller and smaller and smaller in our own eyes. While ignoring the need for forgiveness or letting that root of bitterness take hold actually adds interest to the original debt. And sometimes we can underestimate just how large it can grow. A while ago, I heard about how a copy of Emmerich Devadel's book, The Law of the Nations, was one day returned to the New York Society Library in New York City. It was a legal manifesto that was checked out by someone who just started a brand new job in every sense just five months before. And it was actually going to help him a lot, given the nature of his job. You've probably heard his name, uh, George Washington. At the time it was returned, though, the book was overdue. So, of course, overdue fees were in order. Now, this was a book that originally retailed for, if you adjust for inflation, $15, you know, today. And so to pay the original debt of replacing it would have been pretty affordable for most anybody. Unfortunately, by the time that that book was returned to the desk of that library by one of the Mount Vernon staff, the calendar behind the desk read the year 2010. The book was 221 years overdue, which brought the overdue fine to a whopping $300,000. I mean, as ridiculous as it would sound to demand $300,000 over the matter of a $15 book, that's actually what we do in our bitterness. Because a debt that we exact from someone that we refuse to forgive can grow far beyond the original offense and only grows larger with time. For some of us, it's forgiveness itself that's actually long overdue. And the cost of not dealing with it is rising by the day. And yet the person paying for it is you. And the longer we hold on to it, the more costly it gets. Perhaps one reason why it's hard to let go is that we've actually skipped the first step of the king's forgiveness. Back in verse 27, we read that the king, that the servant's master, took pity on him. Or as the King James Version put it, was moved with compassion. To follow that lead means that we actually sympathize with the offender. To have compassion is for, for someone else's misery, for their situation, not just your own. And what often undermines that response is that we, when someone wrongs us, we tend to make a caricature of them in our mind. We accentuate, we amplify their weaknesses and ills, we minimize or ignore their strengths and virtues, all in an attempt to justify ourselves by how we compare to them. And yet what leads us down the path of forgiveness is instead to identify with that person, not seeing how we're so different from them, but how we're just like them. And I can tell you from experience, the opposite approach has the opposite effect. Back in college, I was, I was really struggling to forgive somebody, and I felt it was practically impossible to do. The cause of the offense was still going on. It was right there in front of me every day. And so I constantly found myself rehearsing how they had wronged me. I could write an essay on it for you on the spot if you asked me to, detailing exactly which biblical principle was violated, how they had done so, and how they continued to do so, and how I would never do anything like that. And I eagerly shared that story, a story that only seemed to reinforce just how different we were, how we were nothing alike. All the while, real forgiveness kept slipping through my fingers. Yet in his parable, Jesus tells us that real forgiveness looks like this. Being moved by compassion, 
identifying with the one who wronged us. We not only choose to pay down their debt ourselves, but in exchange we give them the gift, the gift of existing as if they had not committed the offense at all. And that's what we're called to do. Not just the first time they do it, but again and again. Not just seven times, as Peter suggests, but as Jesus says in verse 22, 77 times. A Jewish figure of speech meaning infinitely. Unlimited forgiveness. Not keeping score. Not even keeping count. Forgiving. Despite the fact that the other person may not yet be repentant. Forgiving, despite the fact that reconciliation, which takes both parties, can still be long down the road. Forgiving, despite the fact that sin still hurts. Forgiving, despite the fact they might do it again. Forgiving, despite the fact that we may not trust them. We may not have any good reason to trust them. For example, if a serial arsonist just burned down your house, just like they've done so many times before, despite however they say it and however they ask you for it, you don't owe them another match. You don't owe them another lighter. You don't owe them a gallon of gasoline in a glass container, which you're never supposed to have them in any way. You don't owe them any of that because you don't trust them, and yet what you do owe them is forgiveness for what they have done. That's the challenge that Jesus lays before us. And as hard as all that seems, when we look at the end of Jesus' parable, you might have noticed that the only soul remaining in prison is the one who refuses to forgive. In the end, we want to be free, to experience the freedom that comes with forgiveness. So how is it even possible? Well, let me tell you the rest of the story of Bitter College Key. One point I often rehearsed in my head was how somebody knew how they could hurt me in advance of their choices and then went ahead and did it anyway. Not because I thought they wanted to hurt me, but knowing that consequence didn't slow them down either. And the more I rehearsed that point, the more angry and the more bitter I'd become. But around that time, I started memorizing scripture, which I found is really dangerous if you're self-righteous. One day, as I'd been rehearsing the ills of others, a verse from today's scripture reading came to mind. It was Ephesians 4, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. To grieve the Holy Spirit, uh, who is united with us by faith as believers, is to cause him sorrow by your sin. Of course, I never meant to grieve the Holy Spirit, but knowing that consequence didn't slow me down either. And that's when it hit me. At that moment, I was so incensed by the collateral damage. That's when it hit me. You see, the very thing I was railing at someone else for for so long was the very thing that I'd been doing to an even greater one, God, repeatedly, and been doing so for years. So incensed by the collateral damage caused by another's actions, I was totally blind to the hurt that my actions had been causing all along. But in that moment when I saw that, I was undone. My perceived moral high ground, lost. The justification for my bitterness, undermined. And the door to forgiveness, opened. And that's what Jesus is doing in this parable. To help us as modern readers, it was very helpful that Philip Massey, who's a business professor at Biola University, retells the parable of, of the two debtors, but in modern terms. Jesus compares being sinned against uh, by another to being owed 100 denarii, which Massey says converts to a five-figure debt, over $10,000 in modern terms. That, that's no small sum to forgive, nothing small to forgive. 
but the debt owed to the king, the Christ figure in this parable, the one that uh, we have sinned against, is likened to a debt of 10,000 talents. And he was helpful because he helped us see how you could pay that back. If you were to work 12-hour days, six days a week, for 20 years, you would have earned a grand total of 6,000 denarii, which converts in their time to one talent. To pay the whole 10,000 talents back, you would only have to keep working at that rate with no holidays and no vacations for just another 200,000 years. Now, if that seems a little bit long, like you're not sure if you would live long enough to pay that back, don't worry, you could always try to pay off the cash value of what 10,000 talents is actually worth. All you have to do is check your couch cushions and seat covers and between your seats in the car and hope you find enough change to cover the cash value equivalent of $6 billion. That's, that's a six with nine zeros after it. Or roughly the GDP of the island nations of Bermuda well, and Samoa combined. You see, when we hear it in modern terms, it helps us to see that our sin debt before God isn't just large. It's actually unthinkable. And that's Jesus' point. As big as another sin debt to us, our sin debt before God is so huge that it could never be repaid. The first servant had a desperate and humble posture before the king because he knew it was an impossible debt and he knew what was at stake. And yet when we come to the point that we see that that first servant is us, seeing the sheer enormity of our sin debt before God, seeing that we're the ones with the unrepayable debt, that we're the $6 billion sinner, when we see that we could never pay it down, never work it off, we see that our only hope is forgiveness. Our only hope is that our king would take pity on us and pay our unpayable debt himself. And when we see that, we're starting to see what Jesus called the gospel. See, the good news is that when we look at the challenge of forgiveness and realize our total inability to live that out, we see Jesus stepping up and saying, I've got this. I got this. You see, in his birth, Jesus Christ identified with us in our frail humanity. In his life, he himself was despised, rejected, betrayed, lied about, beaten, and abandoned by those closest to him. So he knows full well the pain caused by the sin of others. In the Gospels, we read that when Jesus looked upon the city of Jerusalem, the city that would reject him, the place he'd be executed, he wept over it, lamenting over its coming destruction, even having compassion on the people. Jesus identified with sinful humanity without sinning himself and showed compassion, a compassion that we see most clearly on the cross that place where the full sin debt of all those who would trust in Jesus as their substitute would be placed, not on us, but instead on him. The full debt canceled because Jesus paid it himself. The debt that we could never pay, paid with Jesus' own blood, an infinite debt that only the Eternal One could cover. And as we ponder what that would cost, what that would have been like, how much pain we cause each other. We know how much pain can be caused by another sin. And if that is compared to $10,000 in debt, what do you think paying a $6 billion sin debt would feel like? We may never know what that's like, 
But we know from Jesus' on words on the cross what it sounds like. As Jesus was there paying down our sin debt, he cried out to God saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet when his work was done there, doing that on the cross, fully paying down the debt of our sins, he says from the cross in the New Testament Greek, uh, it's translated, uh, it said, tetelestai. Translated in our English, it is finished. And yet a word which referring to payment means literally it is paid. Fully paid. So that we could go free. So that we could walk in the freedom of forgiveness. Experiencing God's rich forgiveness for us so that we in turn can forgive those who sinned against us. So whatever happened to Louis Zamperini? Hillenbrand's book tells us how years after his return from Sugamo prison, a virtual fortress of bitterness would still surround him, while alcohol abuse had become his drug of choice to self-medicate the pain. But the walls of addiction and hatred started to crumble in 1949. In September of that year, Cynthia convinced Louis to attend a Billy Graham crusade in Los Angeles. He resisted at first, but eventually he went, and then he went again. There, the man who had been so fixated on the sin debt of another finally came face to face to his own sin debt before God. Not the $10,000 variety, but the $6 billion variety. The same kind that the bird owed God that Louis now realized, so did he. The kind of reality that leaves somebody with only one hope, the hope of forgiveness. Finally, Louis responded to Graham's preaching and committed himself as a follower of Jesus. After this, Hillenbrand writes, when Louis thought of his story, what resonated with him now was not all that he had suffered, but the divine love that had intervened to save him. How God, the King, had pity on him, had compassion for him. Because he was not the worthless, broken, forsaken man the bird had striven to make him, but instead he was the object of God's compassion and rich love, not the cheap love, but the six billion dollar love offered in Christ. And in a silent, single moment, his rage, his fear, his humiliation, his helplessness had all fallen away. That morning, Louis was a new creation. And his life began to change drastically. He quit drinking. He reconciled with his wife. And as a forgiven man, began the process of forgiving his captors. Determined to forgive even the brutal sadists who tortured him as a prisoner of war, he returned to Japan in 1950, specifically to Sugamo Prison, where many war criminals were being kept. There he personally met with his former tormentors, extending a hand of forgiveness to each one of them. Only the bird was not present. When Louis was told that the bird had committed suicide, Hillenbrand writes that Louis now felt something that he had never felt for his captor before. With a shiver of amazement, he realized it was compassion. At that moment, something shifted sweetly inside of him. It was forgiveness, beautiful and effortless and complete for Louis Zamperini. The war was finally over. Seeing his desperate need of grace, for the grace of God's forgiveness, to pay a debt far beyond anything he could ever pay, Louis Zamperini received a gift that day, the gift of God's forgiveness, a gift far too precious not to share with others for their benefit 
and for our own. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you according to your word as as six billion dollar sinners. Father, coming to you with a debt that we could never repay, and yet your word, your gospel tells us that we are loved with a six billion dollar love, that that is the value that you set on us, the very value of Christ and his blood. Father, as we come to this table, maybe many of us struggling as we even remember the faces of those who have sinned against us, those that we struggle to forgive, for those of us that are even drowning in our own bitterness, drinking a poison that we expect to, to make the other person die. Father, whatever is going on in our hearts this morning, remind us even as the, at this table of the love that you offered in Christ. May it transform us that we would forgive as we have been forgiven. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is good and right to give thanks and praise because of the gospel, because the riches, the riches of God's love and mercy and forgiveness we see right here on the table, a body that was broken for you, blood that was poured out for you so that you could be forgiven, so that you could have the resources to forgive those who have sinned against you. To participate in this meal, you don't actually have to be a member of this particular church. We welcome baptized members in good standing of any church where this gospel is believed. If that's where you're at this morning, we invite you to come. If this morning you realize that would not actually be an authentic expression of your faith, your own relationship with God, please know that we're delighted that you're here and that we hope that the riches of God's forgiveness is one day a gift that you not only see your own need for, just like the rest of us have, but that you would embrace it and experience the joy that comes with it. That is our prayer for you. We do this this morning because on the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this unto my remembrance. Beloved, in the same way after supper, Christ took the cup, also saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In a few moments, you will sing. We all start on the outside, the outside looking in. This is where grace begins. We were hungry, we were thirsty, with nothing left to give. Oh, the shape we were in. Just when all hope seemed lost, love opened the door for us, he said. Come to the table. Come join the sinners who have been redeemed. Take your place beside the Savior now.